Amen. Well, it looks like uh, and sounds like um, like half of our church has got the cold. Anybody here catch the cold and is over it now? Yeah, we've, yeah everybody, you gave it to everybody else that's not here today. So uh, We need to be praying for, for our church. My, my wife is, is home with the cold. My daughter's home with the cold. Um, so I'll be praying for them and so many others. So uh, we're continuing in our series on the life of David called In Search of a King. And we're bouncing around 1 Samuel and, and 2 Samuel. And today we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 25. And it records a story of striking contrast. It's, it's kind of like one play with, with multiple scenes. A story about two people and their response to a crisis. A story of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, different as night and day, and how they each respond to the same disaster. So let's go ahead and set the stage for this story. The chapter opens with these words in verse 1. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. The year is 1000 BC, and Israel is facing a national crisis. Samuel, the prophet of God, who has maintained a a degree of national stability, has died, leaving mass confusion behind him in Israel. And a rebellious king named Saul is out to kill David, whom God has called and has also anointed to be Israel's king and deliverer. So the crisis that the people of Israel are facing is this. Who will the people of Israel follow? David or Saul? Well, David goes down to the uh, desert of Maon, probably because he and his 600 men were running out of food in the desert of, of Judah. And additionally, he's a fugitive on the run from King Saul, who's trying to kill them. That is the situation. Now, let me introduce you to the main characters in this story. You've already met David, right? Now here are the other two. We meet them in verse 2. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. Now, Nabal must have been a nickname because Nabal means fool. Not just like a simpleton, but more like vicious and materialistic and total content for even the idea of God. And according to Psalm 14, the fool, the Nabal, says in his heart, there is no God. And so Nabal here lives as if God did not exist and had no claim on his life. And Nabal's wife and his servants consider him to be mean and wicked and brutal. The man's greatness was strictly limited to his possessions, which ultimately became his ruin. He was a total Scrooge, worse 
thinned Scrooge. On the other hand, his wife was just the opposite. Her name was Abigail. She is described as being intelligent, a woman filled with, with wisdom and good sense, and the scriptures add that she was stunning. So the main characters are, are David, a fool named Nabal, and a sharp-thinking, good-looking wife, Abigail. So there's the situation. There are the, there are the characters. Now, here is the story. While in the desert, David heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And so David sent some of his men to uh, the sheep shearers with a, a gracious greeting and a very humble request. In verse 7, we pick up the story. And the message that David sends to Nabal's men, to Nabal, is, I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. They'll confirm it. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Now, this was a timely request because it was sheep sharing time, and traditionally it was a time of feasting and, and generosity, right? Like Christmas, right? David's army is hungry. And so David asks Nabal for food, and that was a totally appropriate request because David and his men have been constantly protecting Nabal and his men from the incredibly dangerous, brutal gangs in, in that area, and they never took anything from Nabal's shepherds. So Nabal and David didn't have like a contract or anything, but it was custom of the rich rancher to, to pay for these services. You know, after you have a, a good meal at a restaurant, you're not required to tip, but if you're a, a grateful person and not a jerk and the server did a good job, you're going to add a gratuity, right? Well, David and his men had done a good job. In fact, later, one of Nabal's servants says this, that David's men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything. They were a wall of protection to us both by night and by day. David had a claim on Nabal. But Nabal, listen to what Nabal says to David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. This is a total insult because he knows who David was, and listen to what else he says. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who have come from I don't know where? Nabal said, I'm not going to talk to my guys. I don't need them to confirm anything. And so he rudely and ignorantly rejected David's claim and insulted David's name and acted as if he didn't even know David. Verse 12, so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained in the camp with the supplies. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Nabal's servants know that they are in danger. 
that Nabal just messed them all up. And they knew they couldn't reason with a fool like Nabal. And so one of the servants goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and tells her what happened. And, and the servant says, now, now think it over, Abigail, and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over us. And the next verse says this, then Abigail made haste. All right, now check this out. There are three different times in this story where the author makes a point to use the same Hebrew word to describe Abigail's action in three different crises, in three different critical points of this crisis. Three times we're told that she hurried, that she made haste, that she acted quickly. She lost no time. It stands out in the story. In a crisis situation, Abigail took decisive action to avoid disaster. She took enough food to feed David's army, 200 loaves of bread, five sheep, and 300 cakes of raisins and figs, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> she loaded it all on donkeys and set off to head off danger, disaster, destruction. Now, can, can you imagine this? David and 400 of his men are galloping toward the ranch with swords flashing and Abigail moves out to meet them with her catering crew. David just said, David just said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male alive of all who belong to him. That's right. That is intense. And right as soon as he says that, Abel comes around a hill and finds herself face to face with David and his men. I mean, his men. Can you imagine that? I mean, face to face with 400 men intent on murder with their swords. I mean, what would you do? Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried. There's our same word again. And it says she got down from the donkey, fell before David on her face, and bowed to the ground. And then Abigail intercedes for Nabal the fool. She intercedes by doing three different things. First, she takes Nabal's blame upon herself. It says, she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. <laughs> That's crazy. Second, she pays what Nabal owed and says, and now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow you, David. And then third, she asks David to forgive Nabal. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, she says. And David's anger, his wrath, his justice is turned away. And he says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord who sent you this day to meet me. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have guaranteed your petition. His wrath was turned away by the intervention of a wise 
and decisive woman. When Abigail returned home, she found her husband just totally hammered. Verse 36 says he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of his king, and it went on to describe that, that he was very drunk. He just rejected and insulted David and his 600 warriors. David and 400 of his warriors with swords were on their way to murder Nabal and, and every man in Nabal's household. His life and the lives of those around him hung in the balance. Disaster was right around the corner. And what was his response to this crisis? Let's party. Let's get plastered. So Abigail says, you know what, I'm going to bed. And in the morning when Nabal was sober, Abigail told Nabal everything that happened, the whole situation. And when Nabal heard what was about to happen, when Abigail told him the situation, he had a heart attack, fell into a coma. And then verse 38, about 10 days later, it says, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Why? Why did the Lord strike down Nabal? He struck down Nabal because in insulting David's name and rejecting David's claims, Nabal was insulting and rejecting the Lord's anointed. And in doing that, he was insulting and rejecting the Lord. Nabal did not honor God's name or acknowledge God's claim. And he said, because Nabal said, it's my bread, my water, my meat, my shears. He didn't care if David's army... Uh, had what they needed to keep protecting him and his household. He didn't care if David uh, had what they needed to keep protecting Israel, God's people, from destruction and slaughter from the surrounding enemies. He didn't care if God existed. He lived as if God did not exist. And then when David heard that Nabal had died, he said, Blessed be the Lord. Who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept me from wrongdoing, from murder. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. His servants took the request to Abigail, and verse 41 says that she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants, my Lord. Verse 42 says, And Abigail hurried. There it is again, third time. And it says she rose and got on a donkey, followed the messengers of David, and became David's wife. Now that is a crazy story, right? Totally crazy story. I mean, what a contrast between Abigail and Nabal. Between, what a contrast between their responses to this crisis. What a contrast to the responses to the Lord's anointed. And what a contrast between their ultimate end. So what does a crazy story like this have to do with us? Well, like Nabal and Abigail, we face a crisis. We face a cosmic crisis. One day, our ultimate end will come to every single one of us. And our ultimate end comes down to how we respond to the Lord's anointed. 
Now, this story points us to the gospel. Now, let me explain by showing you four things. If you're taking notes, use an insert in your bulletin. Let me show you four things that we learned from this story. First, God has a claim on us. Like David protected Nabal, God has protected us. He has been a wall of protection around us by night and day. I think on my past and I should not be alive today. And there's so many different ways he protects us. And like Nabal, everything that we have that is good, like food and family and friends and, and health, comes from him. We owe him absolutely everything, don't we? But also like Nabal, we have rejected his claim on our lives and insulted his name. And instead of giving him thanks, and instead of giving him love, instead of giving him obedience, instead of giving him loyalty, we lived as if he doesn't even exist. And like David, and like the Johnny Cash song says, God was going to cut us down. Now, I know this makes some of you uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable, right? And maybe you're thinking, you know what? I was afraid of this. This is one of those judgmental hellfire and brimstone churches. I can't believe in a God of love. I can only, I mean, I can't, I can only believe in a God of love. I can't believe in a God of vengeance. Well, I, I want you to know that I agree with you. Partly. It's true that a lot of people emphasize God's justice at the expense of his love. And they say, you know what? We are bad and God is mad. And if you expect God to love you, you had better get your act together. That is not what the scriptures teach. And like you, I hate that teaching. They're emphasizing God's justice without God's love. But then, on the other side, there are others who emphasize God's love without his justice. And they say, you know what? We're not bad. I mean, why in the world would God be mad? We don't have to fear his wrath and judgment. We just got to wake up to the fact that God loves us just the way we are, and we don't need to change a thing. They emphasize God's love without his justice. And you know what? They could be super nice people, but their message is just as wrong. The scriptures teach that God is both love and just. Both. At the same time, how in the world is that possible? We're going to get into that. But here's the deal. God being just and God hating the destructiveness of sin and a God who will judge all evil is actually part of the good news. It really is. And I'll, I mean, think about it. If God isn't just, he cannot be loving. If God is not just, he cannot be loving. If destructive evil is not ultimately judged or destroyed, if wrongs are, are, are not made right, then God is not loving at all. So in our hearts of every single one of us, we know that there must be, there needs to be a final judgment. We all know that. You might, well, not me. Well, I, I think you do because... That's why you would get mad if a murder, you know, got released on a technicality. You'd be thinking, that is not okay. It is not fair to the victim or the family or society. The justice system is kicking them while they're down. Where is the justice? Where is the 
love. Right? Where's the love for the people who have suffered? There is no love for the people who have suffered if there's no justice. So we know. We all long for justice. We know that without justice, there is no hope for us. Okay. With that said, then why in the world don't you like the idea of this 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 idea of God's anger against sin and this idea of a coming of judgment. Why, why does that make us so uncomfortable? I mean, if it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, you're not taking it very seriously. It makes me uncomfortable. And here's why. I think we don't like it. It's because we all have like this suspicion that we all have an inner navel And guess what? The Apostle Paul confirms our suspicion when he says, although we knew God, we neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Although we claimed to be wise, we became fools. We became nables. Romans chapter 1. Every good thing you and I have, everything that's good that you have comes from the hand of God. But instead of, of... of, you know, us giving him thanks and love and loyalty and obedience every second of every day, we have lived as if so often, most of our lives as if he doesn't even exist. In big and small ways, we've rejected his claim and insulted his name each and every day of our lives. And most of the time, we're not even conscious of it. And the question is, Okay, great. How in the world is God going to be both loving and just? If God is just, I deserve justice. But at the same time, he's love. How how in the world can I be loved if he's a just God? That's a perilous situation, right? There's only one way. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. And that's the second thing we learn. Like Abigail, Jesus takes decisive action on our behalf. He goes out to head off God's wrath, and he intercedes for us in three ways. He intercedes for us by taking our blame upon himself, by making full payment on what we owe, and on the basis of that that payment, gaining forgiveness for us. Jesus meets God's wrath at Calvary. On the cross, Jesus takes our blame on himself. And the scriptures say, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And the prophet Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. Or we might say, all we like Nabal have become fools. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Jesus took the blame for our sin upon himself and then Jesus offers to God the payment that we owed. He died the death we should have died. He paid our debt in full. He offered God the feast found in his blood and body pictured here in the Lord's Supper. It is at the cross that we see God's justice and his love come together. 
The cross shows us that the cross shows us that God hates evil even more than you do, more than I do. When Jesus took on our sin and God poured out the wrath of the final judgment on his perfect son, whom he loved all for, for all eternity, he was going to do whatever it took to wipe up the evil that's just so destructive and hurt so many people in infinite ways. The cross also shows us that God is far more loving than any of us ever could be in a million lifetimes. God loves us so much he was willing to die so that we could be forgiven and then live with him forever. And then God has accepted Jesus' payment on our behalf. Therefore, God will accept and forgive any and all sinners who believe. The cross means that no one who seeks him will be turned away. God says, if you seek me, you will find me. Because if you seek him, that means he's already searching for you. He will accept and forgive anyone and everyone who believes that Jesus is the Lord's anointed, our deliverer and our king. The Apostles' Creed says Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. The scriptures and the, apostle, the apostles' creed give us um, a, a very gracious and compassionate heads up that the end is coming. The end will come. Jesus will return. Now, when you hear that Jesus will return, more often than not, that gets a lot of eye rolls because there are so many bad books and bad movies with bad theology about that. But you look to the scriptures and we are told that Jesus is returning to take his bride to church. He is coming to, to take his own. Uh, everyone who, like Abigail, have acknowledged that Jesus is the Lord's anointed. And on that day, the scriptures will be fulfilled. And look what the prophet Isaiah says. Uh, the Isaiah says, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. That is a promise. On, all that, on that day, all evil will be judged, all wrongs will be made right, and the bride of Christ, his church, will finally enter into a life and existence as it was meant to be for all eternity. That's a promise. And on that day, all who like Nabal, who continue to live as if God does not exist, will enter an eternal existence they always wanted. An existence far and away from God the Father. That should be sobering. That should be sobering. So that leads us to the last thing we learn. We must take decisive action. We must take decisive action 
because the crisis demands that we take decisive action. And if we're anything like wise Abigail, we will do three things. First of all, we will waste no time in siding with the Lord's anointed. Now, here's the deal. Most, most of us, most of us, by, by far, you know, come to faith in, in Jesus through a process, through multiple exposures of the gospel. And as a result, we don't want to push people into hasty commitment to follow Jesus to get their, you know, get out of hell free card only to fall away from Jesus. And here's the thing, but we don't, we, we don't want to be lulled into complacency. This story reminds us is that, that, that there's an urgency to the gospel, a very real urgency to the gospel. Your eternal destiny depends upon how you respond to Jesus. Some of you are in process, and and I'm not trying to, you know, uh, manipulate or scare you into heaven. But like Nabal, you may only be a heartbeat away from eternity. Don't, Don't wait until all of your questions are answered and all of your doubts are removed. Because if you wait until all of your questions are answered, if you wait until all of your doubts are removed, it'll be too late. Nobody has all of their questions answered. Nobody has all of their doubts removed. If you wait, it'll be too late. Put your trust in Jesus today. Man, I don't have all the facts. Well, you know, keep, keep searching for truth, but also know this. Abigail didn't have all the facts either. But in light of what was at stake, she took decisive, drastic action based on eyewitness account of the messengers. You have in the scriptures eyewitness accounts of the life, death, burial, resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Trust him. Trust him today. Freely. I mean, with great freedom, freely confess your sin of living as if God has no claim on your life. This is what I had to do. And I have to continually, regularly repent of that. Acknowledge that only Jesus can deliver you from coming disaster. Do that right now. Do that this morning. Second, likewise, Abigail, we will quickly intercede in prayer for others. Just as Abigail interceded on behalf of her husband, So we will urgently and humbly intercede in prayer for our family and friends who have disaster hanging over their heads. Take some time today. Take some time every day to humbly pray for your loved ones. And third, like wise Abigail, we will we will hurry to change our lifestyle. You know, when David asked Abigail to be his wife, she immediately went to him. At the time, David was not on the throne. He was not ruling from a palace. He was a homeless person living in a cave on the run. 
how many of you? Yeah, Abigail was willing to leave. She, she, she was set for life now that her jerk husband was out of the picture. She had this whole estate, could live a comfortable life. She could probably bring some love and justice to, you know, her, her community, her household. And, and yet she was willing to leave it all, leave all of that comfortable, guaranteed comfortable lifestyle to share in David's trials and to endure hardship for his sake. She says, here is your maidservant ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. How in the world could she do that? Walk away from what was comfortable and enter a life that was going to be difficult with no, no guarantees as far as she could see. Well, one thing she did know, one thing that she was convinced of, was that David was the Lord's anointed. She knew the difficulties would only be for a brief time. She just knew it. She married in faith, assured of the fulfillment of God's promise, and confident that in due time she would reign with him. It was an act of faith. At the same time, in the same way, when Jesus calls us collectively to be his bride, he calls us to change our lives. He calls us to change our lifestyles, our, our priorities, what we value. Now, it's going to look different for each and every one of us. For some of you, it means reconsidering your, your career choice. For others of you, it will be reconsidering how you spend your money. For others, it will be reconsidering your, your, your priorities, your, your purpose, your, your goals in life. And for all of us, for all of us, it means a decisive break from the intoxication of our sinful practices. I mean, and being willing to go to, to, to drastic measures. Jesus talks about going to drastic measures. Whatever it takes, simply because you love Jesus and you're loyal to him and you know everything good that you have comes from the hand of God. Why wouldn't we do anything and everything we could to stop doing the things that, that dishonor God, that, that break God's law, and start doing anything we could to bring glory to his name. Not because of just because of some rule, but because you love your king. We got to do this in community. I know I do. How do we do this? How do we change? How do we make big choices like changing career or purpose or goals or maybe cutting something out of our lives that we've been involved with for, for years? Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. How, how in the world? It is by remembering, church, that our bridegroom is the Lord's anointed. The time of difficulty is worth it. All things considered, it will be brief. And you can be confident that God will keep his promises and you will reign with him forever in a world filled with justice and love. 
In closing, Jesus says to us, in light of the stakes, in light of the hour, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a person if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. May God give each of us the grace that we desperately need to take decisive action. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being so patient with us. So often, we don't even think about all the different ways we live as if you don't even exist. God, I pray that by your grace, you would give us eyes to see. God, on on behalf of Infusion Church, I ask that you would show all of us by your grace and by your compassion and by your mercy, show us the sin in our hearts that is destructive to us, destructive to the people in our lives, and just defy you. Give us the gift of confession and repentance, genuine repentance. Not just that we we turn from good works to bad works, but we turn from all works to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you that Jesus intercedes for us. God, make that more real to us this morning. Increase in a, the level of, of relief that we should have so that it drastically changes the way that we live. God, I pray that you would give us a godly zeal that is motivated by your love and your grace a relief that Jesus took the judgment that we deserved to give us new life, life with you. God, I pray that my brothers and sisters here this morning would know your blessing, that they would experience your presence right here, right now. God, I pray that that my brothers and sisters would know that, that, that because of Jesus, you, you delight in them. That you are well pleased with them because when you look at them, you see them clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And then God, it is my prayer that you would enable all of us to live holy lives. God, forgive me for 
for my sin and my idolatry. And God, I pray that I would live a life of repentance and faith. That my only hope with Jesus and only then, because Jesus is the one with grace, only then would I be able to say, to the extent that I follow Jesus, follow me as I follow him. Bless us with repentance this morning. And may we be wholly devoted to you. We pray these things in your name.